Well, turning your Bibles to Luke chapter 22, we're continuing, of course, our study of the Gospel of Luke, and Luke presents Jesus as the perfect man. He is the one who's come, who dies and rises again to be the substitute and sacrifice for the sins of the world. We're near the end of Christ's earthly ministry. He, we have been seeing his final week of his life. He goes to, right before he goes to the cross. He's been in the temple. He's been teaching. Religious leaders have come. They've been confronting him. Last week we saw Jesus is eating the Passover meal with his disciples, and some powerful truths because Jesus changed the meal. The focus was no longer on the, on on Egypt and the Passover lamb and coming out of Egypt. The focus now is on Jesus Christ Himself. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the one who will die and rise again, paying for sin and conquering death. As we continue this morning, we are still at this Passover meal, which we call the Lord's Supper. Sometimes we call it the Last Supper. Sometimes we call it communion. But as we study this passage, two things stand out. And what we're going to see is this. First of all, Jesus tells his disciples that one of the disciples is going to betray him. I mean, he tells them this, and that shocks them because they begin to look around. They don't know who it could be, and, and it just amazes them. And we're going to see how they respond to that. The second thing is we're going to see the issue of servanthood and leadership because they're talking about being great, and they're, they're actually arguing at the table about who's going to be the greatest or who is the greatest. And we're going to see what Jesus says about being great for God. There is so much, as we look in this passage, this, it's a famous night, the Passover meal, and we'll see some great things there as we continue. Now, I want to begin with this question, and, and it's one I, I know the answer that you want, and the answer is, if the question is this, do you want your life to count for Jesus Christ? We would say, well, we all do. We, 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 uh, we want to. Well, we're doing a study in my Sunday school class, which is called Making a Difference. And our charge is this, as we study the cl- in the study, is that we don't want to just go through life, but we want to leave a legacy. We want our lives to count for Jesus Christ. One day, we who know Jesus Christ as Savior will stand before him at what is called the judgment seat of Christ, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, and, and, and we'll stand before him. And it's a place of rewards and a place where God will reward us for faithful service, and we want to hear him say, well done. Well, how does this happen? What must we do? The bottom line is faithfulness. Serving Jesus Christ while we're on this earth, our lives are set apart for him, and the basis for hearing him say, well done, is faithful service. And that's why he'll say, well done, good and faithful servant. When we think about our world, it's the opposite. Our world says greatness is being the boss, being the leader, telling people what to do. So to be great in this world is to be the boss. But God says just the opposite. If you want to be great for him, you be a servant. You use, we use our lives to serve other people. Well, this morning as we continue seeing the Passover meal, Jesus teaches his disciples about greatness in the kingdom. Well, the goal is to understand it and make application. Well, let's begin. We're seeing the famous meal. It's the Passover meal. Jesus has been eating it with his men. He's made a change. We saw last time that he did do something different. Remember, the Passover meal was the meal where the focus was on the lamb. They had It reminded them about how they came out of Egypt, how they took a lamb, they had killed it, they put the blood on the door, and, and God delivered them. He passed over, de- de- uh, destroyed the firstborn in Egypt. The nation of Israel was delivered from the bondage of Egypt. Well, every year the Jewish people would sit down and they would eat the Passover lamb and they would think about that. But at this meal, Jesus made the change. He, is the, he became the focus. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. His body and His blood was shed, the death and resurrection. He is the Savior. And Jesus established a memorial for believers, for all of us. And last Sunday night we had the Lord's Supper. And when we come together, we think about how Jesus died on the cross and paid for sin and rose again. And the bread represents His body and the juice represents His blood. When you think about the Lord's Supper, three things sort of stand out. 
First of all, there's the past. What he did, how he died and rose again for us, how he came to this earth, left the glories of heaven, became a human being, died on the cross, paid for sin, was buried, and rose again the third day, the death and the resurrection of Christ. We think about what he did for us. The second part of the Lord's Supper is also the present, where we think about communion with Christ, because sometimes it's called the Eucharist, which means thanks, thanksgiving, but sometimes it's called communion, which is the idea of our fellowship with him. And when we take the Lord's Supper, we have to be in fellowship with him. And so not only is there a past, the death and resurrection, but there's the fellowship of present of the fellowship and communion and then the third thing there's the future where he's coming again as the king of kings and the lord of lords he said do this in remembrance of me do this until i return and there will be a time that jesus christ will come and he'll set up a kingdom and we'll be with him and so when we think of the lord's supper it's the past his death and resurrection it's the present our communion and it's the future of him coming again now that's last week we saw how he started in a sense this what we call the the communion and the lord's supper as we continue this morning two things stand out two major areas he tells about the betrayal that one of them is going to betray him and then he shows greatness in servanthood and we'll see how that fits together and there's a lot to know and apply we're going just through a short number of verses this morning 21 through 27 but there's a lot there let me break down the passage for you so you can see it first part of the chapter or first part of the little passage jesus tells of his coming betrayal he says one at the table will betray him and the disciples they don't they don't know who it is they're really shocked and so we'll see what happens there second part of the passage is that Jesus talks about greatness comes by servanthood. There's a dispute by the disciples over who was the greatest and who is the greatest, and they're arguing. And so what we find out as we continue is that Jesus talks about how the Gentile leaders lord it over, their bosses. But when it comes to being with him, greatness comes by serving others. And so there's a lot in this passage. In fact, there's a lot to apply. And um, to be honest with you, it's real hard to apply it. It means changing your whole life is what it boils down to. So let's think about it. Let's talk about the Passover meal as we get into this and how he made the change. Look at verse 19 of Luke 22. And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now, he said, This is my body. He took the bread and he said to them, This represents my body. And he talked about how he's going to take take the sin of the world. You know, First John talks about it in First Peter 2.24. He bore in his body our sins on the cross. And so when we think about the Lord's Supper and we take the bread, we remember how Jesus became a person to die for us. There was a second thing that he did. Of course, the bread is his body. The second thing is in verse 20, and that's the next one, and that the cup, and notice what he goes on to say. And in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. The cup represents the blood of Jesus Christ that he shed for us. And so no longer would these men, when they would come together, they would celebrate Passover and they would think about coming out of Egypt. They would now remember Jesus Christ, his body and his blood, how his body was bruised and crushed and wounded, how he took the sin of mankind, how his blood was shed as the payment for sin. And so when we come together and we have the Lord's Supper, that's what we're to remember. Now, right in the middle of this meal, right here, He then tells them that one is going to betray. Look at verse 21. He says, But behold, the hand of the one betraying me is with mine on the table. Now, he says, right in the middle of this meal, he says, The hand of one who is betraying me is at this table with me. They're all sitting there, and he's basically saying, One of you is going to betray me. 
Now, I want you to notice the men were shocked. They had been with Jesus three, three and a half years. They'd seen the miracles. They traveled with him. They thought they were like a team. They thought they were together, and they were going to serve Jesus Christ, and they were willing to live for him, and they were willing to die for him. And now he says that one of them is going to betray him. We know that they, they, they all begin to look around and go, is, is, not, is it me? It's not, it's not I, is it? Some people think that everybody knew Judas, and they'd just look over and go, yeah, there's Judas. He's the scoundrel. Yeah, he's the one. They didn't think that at all. They never even thought he would be the one. We'll get to it a little bit more later on about what, what happened when, this, when he said this. But he said, Behold, the hand of one betraying me is with mine at the table. Sitting right there was a man who had already made the plan to betray him. I want you to see it. Look at chapter 22. Go back to verse 4. Okay? Verse 4 should be in the same little section. This is talking about Judas, and look what it says. And he, Judas, went away and discussed with the chief priest and the officers how he might betray him to them. Now, Judas left, and he went to the religious leaders and said, If you want to, I will turn Jesus over to you, because the word betray means to hand over. And see, they had been wanting Jesus dead. They didn't like him. He was causing all these crowds to follow him. They were afraid they were going to lose their positions. They did not like him at all, and they wanted him dead. But they didn't know how to do it because they did not want to grab him with all these crowds around, and so they didn't know exactly what to do. And now, what luck. One of his own men comes to them and says, I will hand him over to you. Look Look how they responded. Verse 5, they were glad and agreed to give him money. They're going to give him 30 pieces of silver. They were glad. This, it couldn't be better than this. And so he consented that he would do it. He began looking and seeking a good opportunity to betray him to them, notice, apart from the crowd. He, he didn't want to, they said, we can't do this with all the people around. In fact, the religious leaders had decided, we do not want to arrest Jesus and do anything while the Passover is going on, because all these people are in town from all over the land. We just want to do it at a better time. But Jesus has got to die on Passover. Because he's the Passover lamb. They're going to get him and he's going to die on Passover whether they want him to or not. And he's going to rise on first fruits because he is the lamb of God. He is the first begotten from the dead. It's who he is. And so it says, uh, he says, behold, the hand of one betraying me is with mine on the table. And they, you know, they're all shook up and uh, uh, they don't know exactly what to do. And he's looking for that opportunity. Now, you understand that Jesus knows everything. I mean, he wasn't surprised. He didn't look over and go, Judas, you're not telling me. You, you did that? He knows everything. This is all fitting in his plan. All fits together. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's the one who's come to die for us and pay for sin. Now, notice how this flows because there's a dual aspect that a lot of people don't think about. There's a dual aspect. First of all, it is the sovereign plan of God, and at the same time, there is the decision-making of people. Watch. Look at verse 22. He says, For indeed, the Son of Man is going as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Now, he first of all says that Son of Man is going just as has been determined. This is God's plan. To call himself Son of Man was to say he's the Messiah. If you go to the book of Daniel, the title Son of Man is the title of the Messiah, the Savior, and the King. So when Jesus calls himself Son of Man, he's saying, I'm the Messiah and the Savior. He said, the Son of Man is going as has been determined. This is God's plan. It's going as has been determined. This is the plan that God has. God is, has a sovereign plan that, he is, that he would, the Son of God would leave the glories of heaven, become a human being, die on the cross, pay for sin, be buried, rise again, walk on the earth, and ascend back to heaven. He is the Lamb of God who was slain before the foundation of the world. This is God's plan. 
God works all things according to the counsel of his will. He will die according to God's plan. But notice, notice this. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Well, in this it talks about woe and sadness. It means sadness and sorrow to the one who betrays. Because the one who betrays is Judas. And Judas is responsible for his actions. He is the one who betrayed. Judas is accountable for what he did to betray Jesus Christ. God is sovereignly working all things. But each human being is responsible for the decisions and the choices that we make. Now, our God is so great that He can choose and work and plan and have a sovereign plan, and every decision we make we're accountable for, and they fit perfectly in that plan. In fact, God works all things according to His plan, and we are accountable for all our actions. It all fits together. That's the way it is. God sovereignly works all things, but each one of us, we're accountable and responsible for our choices and decisions. We're to live right. We're to do right and wrong. Do do what's right, not do what's wrong. We make choices. We either obey or disobey. But it all fits in God's perfect plan. As we go through life, God is in control. We have the freedom to make choices, decisions, to obey or disobey. And we are accountable to God for those choices, what we do, even as they all fit in his plan. Now, how did the disciples react to what Jesus just said, that one would betray him? Look at verse 23. And they began to discuss among themselves which one of them it might be who was going to do this thing. They began to discuss it. Nobody suspected Judas. They didn't all look over and say, yeah, it's him. That's the one we think. You know, every time you see a picture of Judas that somebody's drawn, he's always mad looking. He's always got an evil scowl on his face. Let me tell you, they didn't think that. In fact, they trusted him. In fact, probably out of all of the disciples, they trusted him the most. You know why? He had the money. They gave him the money. Now, the Gospel of John says that he had the money, and he stole money out of the money bag. He was a deceitful man. But if you said to those men, who do you think is the one going to betray, they wouldn't all go, Judas. In fact, they all went, I hope it's not me. It's not me. It's not me. It's not. Is it I? Is it me? That's what they did. Judas was not suspected. Now, I want you to see something. I want you to see some details. Hold your place in Luke 22. Turn to John chapter 13. That's going a little bit further to the back of your Bible, to the next book, to John chapter 13. And I want you to see what, what, uh, what John records for us in this event. I just want you to get an idea. Now, um, as you turn there, remember, we talked about this last week at a Passover meal or at any meal, basically, at a special meal, there was the place of honor which Jesus was at. And there was a little table, probably about that tall. They didn't sit in chairs like the Last Supper drawing is. They reclined. They usually laid out like this. Their elbow was down, feet out that way, the little table right there, and they would reach up and eat their food. This was the best place. Place to the right, place to the left were places of honor. And then the rest of the people were in a circle around the table. We're going to find that it was Jesus this night is there. John, the youngest, is right there. And Judas is right there. Peter's probably somewhere over here, okay? Because we'll see in just a second. Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me. Look at John chapter 13. Look at verse 21. 
when Jesus had, had said this, and he had talked about different things, about coming and ministry and all of these things, he says, he became troubled in spirit and testified and said, truly, truly, I say to you. Now, we've talked about this. Anytime you see truly, truly, which means amen, amen, truth, truth. Anytime you see sometimes he'll say Simon, Simon. Anytime you say a name twice or a word twice like that, it means listen carefully. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Watch how they responded. The disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know of which one he was speaking. They all began to look around going, who's he talking about? Who's he talking about? Watch what happened. There was one reclining on Jesus' bosom, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Now, the disciple who Jesus loved is John. That's how John describes himself. When you talk about Jesus on earth, there were all kind of people who followed him. But he chose 12 men. Of the 12 men, there were three that were in his inner circle, Peter, James, and John. Of those three, there was one who was the closest to him. It was the one who actually calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved, and that's John. It says in this passage, that there was one reclining on Jesus' bosom, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Now, here's Jesus leaning this way. Here's John leaning this way. All he's got to do is lean back, and he's leaning on Jesus. That's what he's talking about. He He could just move back and talk to Jesus if he wanted to. That's how they did it. This passage says, There was one reclining on Jesus' bosom, one of the disciples whom Jesus loved. That's John. So Simon Peter gestured to him and said to him, Tell us, who it is of whom he is speaking. Simon was over here and he looked over at John and went, lean back, ask him who it is. Ask him who it is. That's what he wants to know. Jesus just got through saying, one of you is going to betray me. And everybody's looking around and Peter looks at John and goes, ask him, ask him. And so John is going to lean back, kind of in a sense almost roll into Jesus like this to ask him. Watch what it says. He, leaning back thus on Jesus' bosom, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus then answered, That is the one for whom I dipped the morsel and give it to him. When he had dipped the morsel, he took it and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. See, we always say Judas Iscariot. We didn't know his dad's name was Simon. He took it. And gave it to Judas, son of Simon Iscariot. You say, that sobbed it right there. They all picked it up, didn't they? Well, I want you to understand, at the Passover meal, he would take some bread, he would dip it in the stuff, and he would give it. Usually giving it to this person first. But I want you to understand that he also gave some to everyone. If you read one of the other Gospels, he gave a sop, as they called it, a morsel to everyone. Now, they should have picked it up. Because he gave it to Judas, and then they talk for a little bit. And Jesus says, do whatever you do, go do it quickly. Judas gets up and leaves. You would think they'd all say, what's he doing? But you know what they thought? They thought, well, he's got the money. Maybe Jesus told him to go buy some food. Watch what it says. Verse 26, Jesus then answered that, is the, that is the one whom I dipped the morsel and give it to him. When he had dipped the morsel, he took it and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. After the morsel, Satan then entered into him. We'll talk about that more a little bit later. Therefore, Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. No one of those reclining knew for what purpose he had said this to him. They didn't grasp it. Some were supposing Judas had the money box that Jesus was saying to him, buy some things we have need for the feast or go give something to the poor. So immediately after the morsel, he went out. 
After receiving the morsel, he went out immediately, and it was night. That's John's way of saying, of course, it was nighttime, but he uses that to say that it was a dark event. It was a, something that was a sad thing. You realize that John leans back and says, who is it? And Jesus says, wherever give the thing, and he dips it and gives it to, to him, and they talk for a second, and then he gets up and leaves. And, of course, what Jesus is going to do, because that's what the host would do at the Passover meal, he passed the food around to everyone. They just went right past him. And when Judas left, they all said, he's either going to go get some more food or he's going to give money to the poor. Because that's what Jesus obviously told him to do. Because he said, whatever you do, do it quickly. They didn't grasp it. They didn't get it. They didn't see who it was. Back to Luke chapter 22. And we see that there they are. And Jesus says, one of you will betray me. They begin to discuss among themselves which one it might be who was going to do this thing. God is working. We are accountable to obey or disobey. We are to live for the glory of God. Now, right in the middle of all this, this final meal, the coming death, the betrayal, what are they talking about? You'd think they'd be talking about, I wonder who is going to betray. They've already passed that. You know what they're going to be talking about? You know, I think I am the greatest. No, no, no. I'm the greatest. No, when he comes as the king, see, I know I'm the, I don't have the best seat tonight, but one of these days when he comes as the king, I'm going to be right there at his right or left. You remember James and John, their mama, their mama went up to Jesus and said, can I ask you a question? She said, you sure can. She said, when you come in your kingdom, I've got two good Jewish boys. I'd like one to be at the right and one to be at the left. They all wanted those positions. What are they arguing over at the what we call the Last Supper? Verse 24. There arose a dispute among them as to which one of them was regarded to be the greatest. Well, what all brought all this about? Well, you need to understand something. You remember I said that the host is at right here. And then these are the two best seats of honor. And that's how the meal was set up. Jesus, of course, is going to sit in the host place. He's the teacher. He's the leader. He's the savior. He's the host of the meal. But who's going to get the two best seats? We saw earlier in our studies that the religious leaders love to go through the city. They love to wear their flowing robes. They love the seats of honor at the banquets. That's what they wanted. Well, just picture this evening when the disciples get to that upper room and they come in and they see it all set up. What do you think they do? They make a rush to see who's going to get the best two seats. Because they know Jesus is going to sit in the middle. He's the main one. They're going to go around him. And that evening, they rushed there. Because, see, normally when you would come in, there would be a servant, a hired person, to wash people's feet when they came in before they ate. They would come in. They would stop. Somebody would wash their feet. They'd say, thank you. And then they would go. Because, see, people's feet were dirty. And when they're going to lay down to eat and people's feet sticking out, they'd all say, look, everybody clean their feet before you get here. But they didn't do that. Because there wasn't anybody hired there. And none of those disciples were going to stop and say, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll wash everybody's feet. Because if you did that, you would look like the worst one. You're not the best one. You're going to be washing people's feet. They're going to be getting the best seats. So nobody stopped to serve. This is what's brought this about. They made the mad dash to get in there. And when they were seated, what did Jesus do? He got up, took a towel, wrapped it around his waist, and began to wash their feet. He's showing who's the servant here. He is. 
Now, it was amazing if you remember. When we think about this, there's two things when we talk about the, the washing of the feet. One, it shows a picture of fellowship, but it also shows servanthood. If you remember, it's a picture of fellowship that when Jesus would come, it's a picture of cleansing. It's like having sin in your life and confessing your sin. Jesus went up, and he began to wash the feet. And by the time he got around to Peter, Peter said, yeah, you're not washing my feet because he's all embarrassed. He thought... You know, deep down, I should have been the one washing everybody's feet. Here's the master. Here's Jesus. He's washing feet. He's not going to wash my feet. I'm not going to make him do that. So he says to Jesus, you're not washing my feet. And Jesus says, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part in this. No fellowship. So you know Peter. He's, okay, well, wash me all over then. You know, if a foot, you know, is good, get the whole body. Jesus said, you've already been washed all over. You just need your feet washed. And the picture of being washed all over is that Peter was a believer. And us, when we trust in Jesus Christ, we're washed all over. But as we go through life and we sin, we get our feet dirty. And so the foot washing was a picture of the fellowship. And so it had to be cleansed. But there was a second part of that, and that was servanthood. Because at the end, he sat back down and he said, You call me Master and Lord, and I am, and Teacher. But learn from me. He said... I served, and he talked about, I've given you an example. And the idea was as he was a servant, we're to be servants as well. They're sitting there arguing over who should be the greatest. And Jesus has washed their feet. And so look, verse 24, here's what happens. It says, and there arose this dispute among them as to which one of them we regard as greatest. And Jesus already taught some things. In fact, Jesus taught earlier. They, they, this is about the third or fourth time they've argued over this. Once they were walking and they were arguing and Jesus knew it and he turned back to him and said, what are you arguing over? And they finally admitted that they were arguing over who was the greatest. And that's when Jesus taught them. And he says, you know, in the world, in the world, the people who are great are like bosses and they tell everybody what to do. He said, but with you it won't be that way. If you want to be great, you have to be a servant. And then he gave the example. He says, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom. So Jesus has already taught this, but watch what he does because he's going to show that in this world, leaders are bosses. That's what they think they do. They, they're bosses, but in the kingdom of God, that's not the way it is. Look at verse 25. He says, And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who have authority over them are called benefactors. He says, In the fallen world, in the world of the Gentiles, and that, the, the leaders lord it over their bosses, and that's what it is. See, a boss says, Hey, I got the biggest desk, I got the biggest chair, I got the one with the windows, I got this, I tell you what to do, I, I got this car, I got these clothes, I got this stuff. I'm the boss. I tell people what to do. Go do this, go do this. You don't want to do it, you don't have to work here. I'm the boss. That's what the world says. That's the boss is the leader. He's the person that tells everybody what to do. But it is not that way with us. Notice he says, the kings of the Gentiles, they lord it over them. Those who have authority are called benefactors. Now, the word benefactor really means the one who helps the people. And they like to be thought of as those who help the people, but they weren't helping the people. They were ruling the people. And so what does Jesus say? He says, but, verse 26, it is not this way with you. This is not how we're going to do it. The one who is the greatest among you must become like the, the youngest and the leader like the servant. Look what he says. The greatest is as the youngest. The leader is like a servant. See, in a family, the youngest one had to do all the stuff that nobody else wanted to do. If you were the youngest, you got stuck. You had to do the serving. Do you remember when Samuel came to Jesse? He was going to anoint the king of Israel. He comes into the house. God told him to go to Jesse, come into the house. And, and Jesse brings his sons in. And the first son is so huge and handsome. And, Je and Samuel thinks, this must be the one. And God says, no, 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 no. You're looking on the outside. I'm looking on the inside. He goes through all these sons. And there's not one there. 
And he goes, well, wait, wait a minute. Do you have any other sons? And he says, well, yeah, I've got the youngest, but he's out with the sheep. He doesn't get to come in here. Youngest is the servant. And, of course, Samuel said, bring him in. He anointed. That was David. He anointed him as king. But see, he says, you want to be great? You've got to be like the youngest. You've got to be the one to do and to serve. And if you're going to be great, you've got to be like a leader, like a servant. In God's kingdom, leadership and greatness are those who serve. They use the gifts, the talents, and abilities to touch lives for Jesus Christ. We invest our lives in other people. We realize why we're here. We're not here for ourselves. We're here to touch lives for Jesus Christ, to serve God and to serve others. And see, that's how we have to think. If you want to be great for God, it is not what can be done for you. It is how you can use your time, your gifts, your talents, your abilities, your money, your possessions, everything that God has given to you. It's how you can use that to invest in the lives of other people while you're on this earth. And you wake up in the morning and you say, God, I want my life to count for you. I'll go wherever you want me to go. I'll do whatever you want me to do. I just want my life to count for you. Use me for your glory. The issue is not who is the greatest. The issue is who is the servant. Because the greater the servant, the greater one will be. And one day, all of us who know Jesus Christ as Savior, you will stand before your Savior at what's called the judgment seat of Christ. It's a rewarding stand. And hopefully for all of us, he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. First John 2 says that we could be ashamed at his coming. If you serve him now, he'll say, well done. If you don't serve him now, you will be ashamed. It has nothing to do with salvation. We're not talking about salvation. We're talking about service. Salvation is a gift that costs us absolutely nothing. Discipleship and service cost us our lives. You want to be great for God? Become a servant. Look for ways that you can touch others' lives for Jesus Christ. Give of your time, your abilities, all given to you by God. J. Oswald Sanders says this, The fundamental lesson is that greatness comes only by way of servanthood. Jesus goes on to give himself as the example. Notice what he says. He asks a question. They knew the answer, by the way. Here's the question. For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table, but I am one among you as I'm among you as the one who serves? Now here's the question. Who is the greater one? The one who's at the table or the one who serves? Well, obviously, the guy eating at the table is greater than the guy who's doing the serving. That's what he's saying. Normally, when you're at the table, the one eating is greater than the one serving, because the one serving serving him. And then he answers the question for them. Is it not the one who reclines at the table? The answer is yes. That's the one who everybody would answer that way. But look what Jesus says. But I am among you as the one who serves. He serves. See, if Jesus is the greatest, it's because he's the greatest servant. And if you want to be great for Jesus Christ, if you want to hear him say, well done, you're going to have to invest your life in people. You're going to have to say, God, take my life and use it for your glory. To be great for God, we must be a servant. When we stand before Jesus, we want to hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. Here's a great statement. If Jesus is great and does not lead like the world, then how should we? How should we as followers? How should we live? How should we lead? If you serve, if you give your life in service for Jesus Christ, you'll be great in the kingdom of God. And the world looks at it the opposite, and they say, no, the boss is the great one. That's the one that tells everybody what to do. 
We're not talking about not doing your jobs. We're saying, Lord, take my life and use me where I work. Use me my family, my home, my neighborhood. Use me for your glory. May my life count for you. May I see myself as one who serves others representing Jesus Christ. Too often we want to think of ourselves as great as these guys did. King Louis XIV considered himself great. At his death he had some instructions. He said, at my funeral, I want the entire cathedral to be dark except for one candle, which will represent me, and that light will be shining, showing my greatness. Well, at the funeral, when the bishop stood to speak, he reached over and he snuffed out the candle, and he said, only God is great. Only God is great. And you want to be great for God? You want to hear him say, well done? Live your life for his glory. Take, take our lives now and say, Lord, I just want to serve you. We only have one life to live. Are you just going to go through life or are you going to leave a legacy? Are you going to go through life just existing or are you going to stand before your Savior and hear him say, well done? May we hear him say, well done. What have we seen? Jesus tells of his betrayal. This is God's plan, but everybody's responsible for their actions. The disciples don't know who the one is that's going to betray. They begin to argue over who's the greatest. Jesus tells them the great one, and greatness comes by being a servant. So let me give you some applications. First one is this. Trust God in all the events of life. That's right, because he's the sovereign God. He's working all things according to the counsel of his will. He is our God. He's our Savior. He's our creator. Even in this betrayal, and we see what Judas did, Judas is responsible. But that's the plan that God is working. God is in control. We can rest in the comfort and the assurance that God loves us. He'll never leave us or forsake us. And he loves us with an unconditional, everlasting love. And we can rest in his plan and actions. Just trust him. Second thing is let's serve God and others as we live now. Because A, greatness is in, greatness in the kingdom comes by servanthood. If you want to be great for God, then the world says, be a boss. That's how you're great. God says, no, no, no. Be a servant. That's how you're great. Use your gifts and talents and abilities. As I said a while ago, salvation is a gift. It costs us absolutely nothing. But, but service costs us our lives. As we offer our lives as living sacrifices. Romans, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice, pleasing to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. That's what we're to do, to offer our lives to God. God says, use your life. Let's offer our lives. B, we are accountable for how we live. We are. We've got, uh, I think, obedience will always bring blessing. Disobedience will always bring discipline. Always does. And when we stand before our Savior, we want to hear Him say, well done. We saw it back about four chapters ago in the Gospel of Luke where Jesus talked about at the end when people were brought forward and they're being rewarded, he says, well done, take this which has been prepared for you. And one day when we stand before our Savior, we want to hear him say, well done. We want to be able to serve him because to be great in the kingdom is to be a servant. May we trust God in all the events of our lives and circumstances as we live for him now, being a servant, seeking to be great 
in the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a passage. Thank you for these great truths. Lord, we, we, trust, we want to trust you in everything. We know that things happen, that you're sovereignly working all things according to the counsel of your will. Thank you, Lord, that you love us with an everlasting love, and we can rest in your love and protection and just trust you. Lord, we want to serve you now. We want to serve you and others as we live right now because we want to be great for you. We want to hear you say, well done, good and faithful servant. We want to use the gifts, talents, and abilities you've given us now for your honor and your glory. May we do that, Lord. And Lord, we realize that how we live now, we're accountable. And if we obey you, there's blessing. If we disobey you, there's discipline. May we live in such a way that you get all the honor and the glory and that there will be blessing for us and that you uh, will get the glory as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Thank you, Lord, for this. May we hear you say, well done good and faithful servant. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.